You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Max Linsky. I don't know where Evan is. Evan's in a uh, undisclosed reporting location doing okay. actual, okay. Uh, actual don't, work. No one, no one disclosed where Evan is. Uh, on the <laughs> show this week, Craig Maud. Uh, Max, you know Craig's work, yes? Yeah, we've been following Craig for a long time. I feel like he is a uh, he's an enigmatic and unique character in the what? world of publishing. He uh, he lives in Japan. And he uh, writes about books and e-publishing. And I feel like you and I have been following his uh, work for, what, like eight years now? Something okay, like that? Let me, let me set the scene for how I encountered his work. Uh, we were early in long form. I was thinking about how I wanted to make an app. And um, no one was really writing about like reading apps, like taking them seriously. People were like, oh, a lot of people downloaded this one and made a bunch of money. Craig would come out with these... 5,000 word deep dives into e-ink, which is uh, <laughs> yeah. what powers the Kindle. Not even the Kindle itself, but like a specific part of the Kindle's technology. Uh, he went on to work at Flipboard, so he's worked on both sides of that divide. Recently, he's been really involved with bookmaking. He has a podcast about bookmaking. I've always thought it'd be interesting to just talk to him about this stuff, and he's always uh, humbly demurred when I've asked him to come on the show. And finally, after many years, I convinced him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important uh, for listeners to know how passionate uh, you have been over the years about digital reading. And I feel like the only kind of conversation about it, at least public conversation, was either like, uh, this kind of like tech spec, like tech blogging. Here's the particulars of the like form factor of the new Kindle. That was like one strain of reporting. And the other was, uh, like horse racy business takes. And Craig occupied this other like third lane where he was just really thinking about like thinking deeply about the impact that digital reading was going to have on culture. And I feel like that was always where you came from it too yeah uh, so i'm excited for this one that's the point of what i'm saying uh, some like-minded individuals um we get going kind of quickly here uh so just uh know uh craig lives in a smallish town in japan and has lived there most of his adult life uh though he is an american i know most of these details of his life not uh through any personal relationship with him uh but because i have been a subscriber to his email newsletter 
for the better part oh, of so a decade. Nice. Uh, so smooth, Lammer. So smooth. So, and uh, there's only there's only one company that could power a uh, passionate technologist's email newsletter. It's Mailchimp. Uh, Mailchimp has been delivering me uh, a little uh, tidbits of Craig's life for probably eight years or so. So if you want to stay in touch with people for not weeks, not months, but decades, get an email newsletter from Mailchimp. Thanks to Mailchimp. Now here's Aaron with Craig Mott. Welcome, Craig Mott. Hello. Uh, straight here. You're not coming from Tokyo. Uh, kind of, you know, circuitously from Circu- Tokyo. You live in Tokyo. Yeah, close to Tokyo. Where do you live? Uh, down uh, a little bit south of the city. I escaped the city earlier this year. I just kind of hit a city saturation point. I like that um, even for Americans living in Japan, moving to upstate New York is a thing you do. Yeah, totally. This is I live in the Hudson Valley of Tokyo. <laughs> that's <laughs> i was like i don't i don't need to i kind of woke up one day and was like I don't, why am i in the city i don't have to be here and uh the trains are so good yeah i mean this is the killer thing the trains are great you know to get to hudson it's kind of tough and it's expensive yeah how, how much does it cost to get up to hudson on the round trip round trip probably 120 bucks that's insane right yeah so okay i live 45 minutes outside of tokyo round trip it's like 12 bucks wow so how often do you go into Tokyo? Um, once a week, twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depends. Sometimes not for a month, but you can get snacks. You can get a beer on the ride home. <laughs> I mean, it's like pretty good. Um, okay. So I'm going to do, I'm going to take myself back in time here to when I first encountered you, right? We're friends. Uh, I visited Tokyo once and Craig uh, chivalrously uh, showed me around. Um, and that was the first time we met. That was the first time we met. Yeah. yeah. We met in a park. Yeah. In Tokyo. Ueno. Ueno Park. But before that, when I started doing long form, I feel like there was like a pressure to find people who were writing outside of traditional mm. New Yorker, the Atlantic kind of channels. And at the time, I I really envisioned that that's where the world was going, mm. was that all of these different writers would be in this like satellite constellation of personal blogs and would just sort of have their own... Uh, almost small businesses as writers. And that isn't really mostly what happened, but you were an example of someone who I found who was doing that, um, who were kind of, was kind of writing on your own terms, mostly, I guess, about books. So let's start there. What got you into books in the first place? And when I say books, I don't mean like writing um, novels. I mean, physically books, the uh, object, which is printed with ink and paper just uh, a continuous lifelong obsession really and then really i mean it was going to japan when i was 19 going to kinokuniya you know the main bookstore there and not understanding the delight i felt but feeling this tremendous delight what was the book culture that you found in japan like well this is what i could it took me years to process it's a culture of tremendous respect for the reader and a tremendous awareness of the container and a respect for the craft of creating a good container, making beautiful paper, using a good binding, even in mass-produced, mass-market books. And then thinking about format. I mean, this respect for the reader goes through multiple layers, you know, and it's like, there's a format in Japan called the Bunkobon, which is like this tiny pocket-sized book. And it's wonderful. It costs just a couple bucks. It fits 
in your pocket. When I was putting my bookshelf together a few weeks ago, I was like, why didn't we just do everything, Bunko Bond? Because like, America has like 17 different book formats. There's no way you can get a flat shelf with a well, like uniform top. And this is a pretty American thing. If you go to Germany, if you go to France, yeah. there's a lot of uniformity in yeah. book design, right? Yeah. And I guess I, you know, I had never been to Germany or France, and I walked into Kino Cunha, and I just felt, you know, in this way that kind of happens unconsciously, the respect that the culture had for creating great objects out of literature. And that that kind of sat in my mind for years. Did you speak Japanese at the time? No. So you were literally just looking at these Japanese books as objects? Totally. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do with this interest from there? Well, I came back to the States to finish university. And I was doing a degree that was computer science. So I have this like really heavy engineering background. Yeah. Plus fine arts. And then in fine arts, I was focused on photography and a little bit of design. And I just started thinking more and more about books as objects. Like I couldn't get this image of the things I had seen at Kinokuni out of my mind. Yeah. And then when I graduated, I had this opportunity to start a small press with an editor I worked with in Tokyo. And um, I'd been working there over the summer as a writer. I didn't tell him I knew how to do any design work. I was like, I just want to focus on writing. And at the end of the summer, he said, hey, I'm going to quit and start this small press. Do you want to help out? And uh, I said, yeah, that sounds great. And so that kind of allowed me to um, really sit with the question of how do you make a book? How do you make a beautiful book? How do you respect the reader in the materials and the size and everything? And the first book that we did together, the press was called Shin Music Press, and the first book we did was called Kuhaku, which was like this essay collection that he had put together through like friends. And, and the idea was that Kuhaku is a word in Japanese that means like kind of blank space, empty space. And the idea was to capture stories from both Japanese people who kind of had left Japan and returned and also foreigners who were living in Japan who had lived there long enough to kind of notice things, but not too long enough to have everything become normalized. And so it was a collection of stories about this like kuhaku space, this liminal space of you've been here for a while, but you haven't been here too long, or you've gone away and you've come back and you have fresh eyes, but you understand the culture of what it means to live in a city like Tokyo. And when I was looking at that, I was working as art director on that project. I was drawing inspiration from McSweeney's. This is the early 2000s, like yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. So Dave Edgar's work was not as a writer, but as a designer yep. was like hugely influential. I've ever, you know, in Philadelphia, I was going to school out in Philadelphia. I just go to the bookstore and just kind of like almost like rub the McSweeney's stuff over my body, you know, like trying to like get whatever was happening, you know, with that work. Because even at university, no one was teaching design with that kind of playfulness and ridiculousness that maybe like in hindsight is kind of twee. But in the moment, was really fresh. It's interesting that you bring up McSweeney's because I would situate McSweeney's in a similar place uh, to your work. Uh, not that the work is similar, but it's similarly a very meticulous physical work that came about during an era of great digital transformation. Right, right. And the work does feel like a reaction to that digital transformation. So simultaneously while you're doing this stuff, you're getting a computer science degree and kind of starting to get involved with startup-y Silicon Valley-ish stuff. Kind of. 
I had done a couple summers of internships in Silicon Valley. Yeah. What uh, did you think you were going to do with a computer science degree in 2003? Honestly, I didn't want to go to school. Okay. I, I was just going, no one, in my, no one in my family went to university. My mom ended up going to community college late in life, kind of like post trying to do marriage and then, you know, kind of becoming single and, you know, wanting to create a career for herself in education and going to school. So it was in some ways it was I had this opportunity that I felt like I had to fulfill. But yeah. honestly, I just wanted to run away to Silicon Valley and skip school entirely. I, I really wanted to. I felt like I was missing the boat. Yeah. Like I really felt like, you know, I, I was born 1980 and I grew up programming on my neighbor's computer. We couldn't afford a computer. My neighbor had a computer. He was divorced. He lived alone. I think he just liked like his wife got custody of his son and <laughs> i think he just liked having this like surrogate son over even if all i did was use his computer yeah and i started programming when i was eight there and, and so i was kind of always obsessed with it and i was doing web pages when i was like you know 14 15 yeah and it was always this combination of design and tech and literature that was always that was like the three-pronged uh, sort of stance and like philosophical stance I had when I was approaching any, anything on the computer. So it was storytelling and it was how do you tell a story beautifully and then how do you leverage programming to create an interesting place for that story to live. And so um, the computer science degree was just kind of like, well, I can do computery things. Uh, so I might as well, I guess, get a degree in this. I don't know. I I was very anti-university and I didn't know what I was doing and I was full of a lot of angst and it was not I would not say it was a fun time for me but you landed in kind of in a pretty fertile place which is you're interested in these in books and this beautiful book design and you're interested in programming and you happen to be graduating from college kind of right as publishing the industry formerly known as the magazine industry imploded and had to move its container online. Well, it was actually Silicon Valley imploded. So I, I went when I went to Japan, I was like, well, I'm going to go to Japan. I'm going to spend a year in Japan and then I'm going to skip school and just go back and live in San Francisco and like go to raves and <laughs> and work for some startup. Like that's what you did in the 90s. Did you have jinkas? I definitely did. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's what you did, right? But then when I was in Japan, everything fell apart. And I was like, all right, fine, I'll finish school. Sure. But publishing then was actually, if you look at the numbers, and you look at newspaper revenue, that was the height of it. Like, it was still going up then. Right. I think the peak was like mid-2000s. This is kind of like how my dad would always tell me that, like, what's pop culturally known as the 1960s happened in like 1975. You know, like he's from Iowa. It wasn't like the summer of love happened in 1969. Like it didn't hit. And and that's, uh, I think that's a theme around a lot of uh, the interactions between publishing and technology is that we kind of remember it's like, and then the internet came and it was all over. It's like, actually when the internet first came was, uh, all-time high for advertising revenues. It was just about to come crashing down. Well, it was like the writing was on the wall but things online weren't cohesive enough to subvert what the newspapers were doing. Like Craigslist wasn't quite, it didn't quite have the momentum, I guess, that I had a few years later Yeah, to just upend all of the... the well, re- not everyone, I mean, not everyone really had internet at home. Right, we were, like early 2000s, it was, there was still AOL dial-up was 
what I was still forty percent of still not. running up a like a going to debtors prison over my AOL, AOL bills during that period. Right? Were so, you an, were you an AOL kid? I I was a prodigy. 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 Both of them, I think, were pay by the hour, as I recall. Uh, or wow. minute. That's a great business. To get. T- talk <laughs> yeah. about businesses you'd like to get back into. By the minute internet. Well, especially when it was so slow and it took like an hour to download one little JPEG. Yeah, that progressive load <laughs> JPEG. You'd start to download something, go play a game of basketball, come yeah. back, and then maybe you'd have you know the file or whatever. At what point did you think, I should take these interests I have and write about them? Uh, when I left my publishing company. And what were your early forays into writing about books and publishing and digital reading and stuff like? It was all just sort of uh, angst fueled. <laughs> yeah. Was, so I'd been kind of working with that indie publisher for, you know, six or seven years and we had done a bunch of books together. And I was just kind of feeling that there was this whole other world emerging. To me, it was very clear. It had been clear since the 90s that the web was was where publishing was going to go. Yeah. And by the mid 2000s, I'd kind of done all of my weird, you know, as we were making physical books, beautiful physical books, I was doing all these kind of like online data visualization projects. Like also, you have to remember in the early 2000s, like data viz didn't exist. You know, it's like now everyone's got like a data viz team and, you know, the MIT Media Lab does a bunch of, you know, data viz. In the early 2000s, that that was all kind of frontier. It was all, uh, you had to get Edward Tufty books if you wanted to get into it. That was one of my internships. The design lead at the company, my gift leaving was the Tufty trilogy. I went home and I read it in a weekend and I came back and I was like, you just changed my life. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, these are incredible. And, and and that's also another, like an archetype that sat with me of how a book should feel, could feel. You know, Tufty books are, they're so well-crafted on an editorial level, but also on a design level. You know, the sentences end perfectly. That text, the type Everything is designed for that definite container, right? Like this is like pure definite content. And so that kind of sat with me as well. And uh, But by the mid-2000s, late-2000s, I'd kind of seen all of the folly of indie publishing. You know, indie publishing, no one was making money. I was going to these consortium sales conferences, and Amazon was coming up. Like Also, you have to remember too, like mid-2000s, Amazon still wasn't anywhere near what it is today. You know, now we order everything on Amazon, but like it was really, it was mainly just books back then. And yeah, we just, um, I'm just unpacking boxes here in my basement and my wife has a Publishers Weekly with a cover story on Amazon that is basically arguing that Amazon is probably going to flop because people want selection in their online book shopping, not a single source. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. Well, this is the thing is, I think this is what annoyed me about the rhetoric of that moment in the industry. Yeah. So I'm sitting there in these sales conferences and I'm just hearing people lambast Amazon. And I'm going, Barnes and Noble is not your friend. Like our memories were so short, Yeah. right? It's like mid nineties, Barnes and Noble was eviscerating all the local bookshops. They were the Amazon, you know, and now mid two thousands, Barnes and Noble was sort of a savior. Borders was, was kind of a weird savior. And I just remember thinking like, you guys don't get it. Like our margins are so thin to begin with we're paying such a high premium to consortium our distributor just to get into these stores amazon is a way to subvert that i'm like we should be embracing this and no one wanted to embrace it so i like this building angst you know you ask like why did i start writing about this stuff and it was really it was like i had watched for 
six or seven years, an industry afraid to look at itself and afraid to look at how the landscape was changing and afraid to go, how can we leverage these new technologies in a way that makes it easier for us to do the thing we want to do, which is for most of these companies, this really altruistic thing of giving voice to people and language that they feel like should have voice. You don't start an indie publisher because you, you want to make a ton of money. Like you aren't going to make any money. You do it because you believe in these people that you're publishing, right? And you want to get that voice out into as, in front of as many people as possible. And I'm sitting there, like I, I felt like I was having a breakdown. I'm like, Amazon is clearly a way better way to reach more people and using the web is a better way to reach more people, to like fulfill that contract, that goal of what we want to do as indie publishers. And just no one in the room wanted to have that conversation. So as you saw these indie publishers going one direction, there starts to be this other strand coming out, which is basically the digital reading experience. The, I'd say long form launched, I think right after the iPad came out. And I don't think that's like an accident that like, that's the arbitrary line in the sand for me. I mean, the iPhone really should have been the like, Hey, everyone has a digital reader in their pocket, but the app store wasn't out yet, I guess. And like the screen was so small on the first iPhone, I guess that people like, People weren't really thinking, like, I'm going to do all my reading on my iPhone. But right when the iPad came out, it seemed like there was a marked change where people said, this is the, like, new battleground. It's not about Barnes & Noble versus Amazon. It's about capturing people's attention on this tablet. Which is funny because the Kindle had been out for three years, I think, by that point. And you wrote about the Kindle pretty extensively. Kind of. I mean, the first essay where I was like, all right... Like, I was really angsty. Yeah, it was like reading back through your archive, I realized that you had like the typography in the Kindle is something that's like taken a year off of your life. (laughs) Probably. It was like the anger you felt about it. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. I was just, well, I was, you you write about the Kindle the way that like people write about American politics. (laughs) Well, Well, I mean, only because I saw so much potential. Yeah. Right. And like I had spent, a decade by that point, basically fiddling with typography, yeah, you know, obsessing over it in print form. And here, you know, the Kindle, we had this e-ink screen, which had all the promise of print, but the software was being made by people who clearly had never designed a book ever in their lives. Yeah. And it was just like the gap there felt like it would be so easy to bridge, but no one was doing it. And, uh, and I just didn't have enough hugs. I was very, I had a massive hug deficit yeah. in my twenties. Like you wanted the Kindle to hug you and it didn't want to hug you I back. had no hugs from any of this stuff. No. So I'm like 27 years old and just kind of like, ah, you know, like want to flip yeah. over some tables. But you, the other interesting part about following you during this period in this writing. And I was like, I was trying to make this stuff too. Right. Like I was trying to make the long form app, which was, I, I thought was going to be the reader of the future. And I thought I was going to like change the course of how people read and, and all of these uh, grand hyperboles. The irony is like you were extremely widely read. Probably the Kindle team was reading your essays about the Kindle. Like this world of small creative publishing and like criticizing the design of digital readers. This isn't like a massive world. There aren't that many players in it. No. Well, and and I think that's what really blew my mind. I mean, that first essay I did books in the age of the iPad, you know, that was 2010. Yeah. That was like a month after the iPad was announced. And it was this kind of thesis slash manifesto, which had like come from being frustrated by the indie publishing universe. Yeah. Where, 
people didn't want to listen to what was happening in the digital world. Having this extensive digital background. So for me, like the internet was a safe space. Mm -hmm. I felt really good on the internet. Yeah. I was comfortable. I loved it. I wanted to build more stuff for it. Yeah. And, and it fell a force like an inevitable force too. It's like, totally. you know how the world is now? It'll be more like the internet next year. Yeah. You're not going to push this back. So it's like, why are we ignoring it? Why are we not having these conversations? And then having spent all that time making lovingly made physical things, physical yep. books. And, uh, and I wrote that essay up, I pushed it out. And then I was like coming to New York, I think maybe for like a sales conference or something. And I got on the plane. When I got off the plane the next morning in New York, it had been picked up by the New York Times. It, like it had someone at like School of Visual Arts had given a talk the night before and like used the essay in their time. It was just weird how quickly that spread. Yeah. Looking back on it, I mean, it was just it, it it's too angry by certain degrees. Like it's just it could I think it could have been more effective if it was a little little more. You know, there, there are ways to phrase things in there that I was I could have and I and I didn't. But I think that the core feeling of like let's stop making books that don't need to be books. Like, let's stop doing that. Not categorically in the sense of like, let's never make another book that's cheaply made again. But we have to take a second and kind of put those sorts of books over to the side in order to embrace and fully understand the parameters of this new thing that's in front of us. Right. And I think that that for me was like the core of what that essay was about was like, let's take a moment to really live with this new platform, this new container, this new canvas. Because I felt like there's a potential here. And I mean, you felt this too of how do we redefine this reading experience? Well, it suggested that we were going to fork the idea of writing into almost two strands right. and there was going to be this permanent physical object that was going to be conferred only to things that we that were important to preserve as artifacts and all of the ephemerality would be uh, pushed into these digital formats. Right. And the secondary argument I think you made over the next couple of years was that after that fork, that digital experience, what would be defining about it would be um, several elements. Uh, it's communal format, that marginalia and commenting and being able to like peer into other people's thoughts. So to like read a book with someone else's notes and thoughts on it would be a defining part of the experience. And also a little bit of the like Kanye West uh, Life of Pablo effect, which is uh, there would never be a static understanding of what the text right, was, right. that text would be able to be written on the fly and revised, and part of the reading experience would be following along. So, Craig, how many years has this been now? Seven years? Seven since, years. Since that first essay? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I, I also just went back through and did yeah. a reread. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't looked at him in, in years. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it feels like it was... Stage one was defining what goes where. Stage two was figuring out how to design well for this new this new space. Yeah. And then stage three was talking about well, what is additive in the what digital is, world? What does it mean? So yeah, what well you know how do you add marginalia to it? How do yeah. you how do you collapse the distance between writer and reader? You describe this idea of artifact based publishing the old beautiful print model as being like a very small loop between basically an author and an editor right. and digital publishing as being this much, much bigger loop right. that includes readers and multiple writers and editors and uh, basically everyone who touched it being part of kind of a giant chain. Totally. Well, and, and having this history to the book made visible. Yes. You know, when you print something out and you have all these immutable artifacts, they all exist as their own islands. And what digital was doing, it was taking all those islands and collapsing them 
into the shared island space, right? I mean, in an ideal scenario. Yeah. You know, it's like if Kindle and Amazon really wanted to leverage this, I mean, they kind of do it with the, the highlights and things like that. It's more of an afterthought. It's not the defining part of the experience. Right. Like when Life of Pablo got updated, everyone was like, whoa, it's different. Yeah. When Kindle update, like highlights pop up, I'm like, oh, what is this? Yeah. Oh, it's like, why is this here? Well, this is the thing is none of it really turned out as expected yeah it's interesting you became like a, a guru of this stuff <laughs> and like i wouldn't say your ideas were wrong they all the things that you wrote about happened they just didn't happen for like high-minded nonfiction. like the things that people are all participating are arguments about the american political system not experimental uh narratives well right well but also like none of my ideas were new Interesting. Tell me about that. So I think, you know, this idea of like digital books as being this last decade post Kindle thing is ridiculous. You know, like people have been writing about digital books for the last hundred years, you know, like Vannevar Bush writing about it in the 40s for The Atlantic in his essay, As We May Think. Basically, he describes Wikipedia, a desk that is Wikipedia. Right. Right. I mean, it's like it's what is a digital book? A digital book is like this idea of collapsing a set of information into a single unit that you can kind of carry with you or take with you or, or it's shrinking down the Library of Alexandria into a desk. You describe this well in one of the essays. You say, like, what happens when you change containers? When you change the container of an encyclopedia, like the simplistic way of thinking about it is it becomes the Microsoft Encarta CD-ROM. The actual thing that happens is Wikipedia. Right. It's like, well, when you build something that's based on the philosophy of encyclopedias, you don't just shrink a physical thing down onto a DVD or CD. You know, you go, okay, what is what is an encyclopedia? You could recreate it for today. Yeah. And today, millions of people are participating in a communal encyclopedia. Well, and I'd say like Wikipedia is probably the best example of uh, like a truly successful digital book of, of all the digital books in the world. Wikipedia wins. Yes. Right. It's like completely subverted the value of a physical encyclopedia. It's right there. We can touch it whenever we want, you know, and, and it's generally trustworthy, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, to a degree. But like, you know, so you have Vannevar Bush talking about this stuff. You have obviously Marshall McLuhan, you know, his famous quote, book is information service. You know, it's like collapsing these books down from being immutable things into this kind of nonlinear exploratory space. You had Alan Kay in the late 60s, early 70s with the Dyna book. You know, Alan Kay held up a thing that looks exactly like the first Kindle in 1972. You had uh, Borges writing about infinite books yeah. right the book of sand this is a book that has no beginning and no end i mean he was describing the internet he was describing wikipedia or whatever so it's like none of these ideas around digital books were new yeah it just so happened by late 2000 we had a few technologies that came together that kind of created the impression that we had a thing that could kind of be a digital book right so it's like you had e-ink you had um cellular connectivity like i think the, the one thing that the kindle has done and maybe in the end, the greatest thing it's done is that they gave you unlimited 3G connectivity worldwide. So you didn't work on Kindle, but you did work on a project called Flipboard, which was like a big hit app. Um, it's still a big hit app, but you don't work on it anymore. What was it like having this like deep, like theoretical, fundamental understanding, thinking about like Marshall McLuhan and Alan Kay, and then actually being hired 
to build something that in some ways is attempting to uh, fulfill the utopian promises that thinkers have been setting out for the last 100 years. Yeah, it was really exciting. Yeah. It was like, I mean, that was, if you were to point at a heyday. Yeah. How did you go from being like working at a small press in Tokyo to working at like a many, 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 many million dollar startup in San Francisco? Yeah. I mean, really writing those essays. Okay. You know, in a big part. It was, it was very, I mean, it was very strange to write these things, not thinking there was an audience for them. And then to have the the response in the audience that came out. Yeah. And not only that, but like, you know, I was, you know, went to South by Southwest because of it. I was, you know, staying at with venture capitalists in, in Palo Alto, people trying to get me to join uh, funds and things like that. And I was really at that point, I was just kind of I felt like I'd hit my ceiling of experience in Tokyo. And, you know, I had done a few essays and I just felt like, well, it'd be nice to have some praxis for all this theory. Yeah. And was that intimidating though? Cause like I know people who are business writers and are very successful business writers, but no one goes to them and says like, Hey, you're the CEO. Now you're like, your business what? writing was so on point. Well, I've been building stuff all yeah. along. I had been writing software. I had been building databases, you know, so I was, I was comfortable with software. Yeah. I've been building software since I was 10. And, uh, so that wasn't, I understood how it worked. I mean, most intimidating was just whether or not I could step up to be at the level of this team. You know, it wasn't the work that was intimidating. It was like, can I hang with these people who are all double A killer players? They're just the best of the best. You know, I was working with Marcos Westcamp, who was one of the best designers of his generation. Talk about data visualization. I mean, he built Newsmap which was used in the situation room at the white house. You know, it's mm. like, it's like, I'm, I'm, you know, sort of cowering my boots here because I want to live up to what I think Marcos thinks I can do by hiring me, you know, or Mike McHugh, the guy who was running the company, you know, I sat down with him for uh, yogurt, which is what you do in Palo Alto. You go have yogurt <laughs> as one does. So we sat down for yogurt and within a minute, I was just like, this is a good human who has operated at a massive scale. You know, he sold his last company for $800 million to Microsoft. Like, this is a guy who knows how to build big things. And his motivations are coming from a good place. And he's, like, childlike in his excitement for the work that's going on. And I just thought, yeah, okay, I can learn something from this person. So it was exciting. I mean, it really was. And it was, the iPad had just come out. I joined Flipboard, like, two months after the app launched. And, like, that was the first app that had a waiting list to get into the app. Remember, it's like you had to sign up. I was on that waiting list. (laughs) I think I was too. But it was, you know, it was this moment where we didn't even have server infrastructure that could handle the interest. And, you know, it was really this inflection point moment in culture where we're like, maybe this is going to be transformative. How do we all get on board to touch it? And then... What happens? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then, um, man, it's been a weird last couple of years. Well, I was just thinking when you were telling that story and all of these like influences you had, these like futurists and thinkers and how that was what something like Flipboard, like what felt like the challenge, something of Flipboard then. Now, when I think of Flipboard and this is no insult to Flipboard, this I could say this about any news app. I would think that they're probably engaged in like trying to get like russian android jelly bean like phones pre-installed with flipboard in order to hit some sort of a new user target for q4 2018 well well here's the problem is when your company is an advertising company that's what you have to hit 
and all these companies are advertising. They're companies. all advertising. There, there's no centralized place to read that's not an advertising company that I can think of. I would say Wikipedia was successful because it's a nonprofit, non-advertising driven property. It's because the experience there is so unmarred by the bullshit. And so like, I don't think Flipboard has not been as successful as people hoped because it was explicitly advertising driven. I think there were a few things that happened, one of which was just it wasn't as nice to read on screens as we thought it would be. We we got like got addicted to it but didn't enjoy it. Well, we you know, the you know, you pick up an iPad, you pick up an iPhone, what are you picking up? You're picking up a chemical driven casino that just plays on your most base desires for vanity and ego and our obsession with watching train wrecks happen. Yeah. That's what we're picking up. And it's counted in page views. It's counted in page views because I mean, not to like be reductive and say it's a, you know, a capitalist issue and it's, you know, but when you take millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital and you're building models predicated on advertising, you are going to create fucked up algorithms and shitty loops that take away your attention. Yeah. And guess what? You need to engage with long form text. You need control of your attention. And so I think part of what subverted our ability to find this like utopian reading space is the fact that so much of what's on these devices is actively working to destroy all of the qualities needed to create that space. Yeah, all the, the qualities that are reading, basically, yeah. that, that are necessary for reading. Like, by trying to create a better reader, we created a thing that makes having a reader kind of irrelevant because you're not going to have that pocket of time that you needed a reader in the first place. You don't need to read. And whenever you encounter any kind of mental hurdle, you're reading a difficult text, and you, you hit on that passage that takes a second to process. Yeah, we've basically reprogrammed ourselves to instead of work through that passage, just flick up and go to Twitter. Yeah. Why not take that hit? Yeah. It's right there. So while this um, macro story about the industry is <laughs> right. happening, the micro Craig Mod story that's happening. So you wrote these essays. They changed your life. They got you to VCs, vacation houses in Tahoe, (laughs) and you probably got paid a lot better than you did when you were working at the Indie Press in Tokyo, uh, working on Flipboard. I made more in a month than I made in like a year and a half when I was working for the Indie Press stuff. But you didn't keep doing it. You didn't say like, okay, this is my thing. I'm like a digital reading guru. Like I'm going to come out with four essays a year and um, get on the conference speaking circuit on this topic? Well, I don't know. I've always been contrarian. And so when I got to Silicon Valley, the goal wasn't to like sit in a massive venture back company for a decade. It was to go in there and kind of be a spy and go, how does this work? I want to understand how the systems work. I want to understand how venture capital worked. I want to understand how to create the mythologies required to get someone to write you a check for $100 million. Dude, no one writes you a check for $100 million if you're talking pragmatically. That is not the conversation that happens in that room. You go into a pitch for a $100 million check and you fucking talk 
myth. You are pulling from Greek mythology. You are, you are, you are saying we are aiming for outside of the Milky Way. We are going to other stars. We're going to other universes. Like that's the only way to get someone to write you that check. And I wanted a front row seat because that to me is really interesting. These mythologies that are creating all these companies that we see and that are affecting our lives in all these weird ways. What did you learn? I learned that. I mean, I just learned, <laughs> I went, I went from this like intellectual understanding of like, I bet it's really hard to get a hundred million dollars to watching someone put together the pitch deck and then doing it to running an all, all hands meeting saying, we're going to go to, you know, Alpha Centauri and watching everyone in the room believe that and then watching it not get there. Yeah. You know, and for me, 15, I stayed at Flipboard just for 15 months and that was enough for me, but it was a weird thing to walk away from. And then after that, you also wrote about micro publishing right? and this idea that the iPad and there was now a diverse array of readers available that people would be able to publish these sort of micro personal magazines, almost picking up where like the zine movement left right. off, right. but less like the Blogspot version of that and more like, hey, this looks exactly like the Wired app. Like you and the Wired app are on equal footing with each other and you can charge people two ninety nine in the app store per issue and run your own Wired magazine should you care to. Right. Well, well hopefully it doesn't look like the Wired app because I, I gave I gave the Wired app a lot of shit. Yeah, it's true. The Wired app was a bad example. It, it, it looked better than the Wired app. The, well, the Wired app was a perfect example of what we weren't supposed to do at that moment, which was take a magazine and then just PDF it. Right. And I remember giving shit to it. And then the UK editor of Wired, <laughs> like attacking me at a talk, being like, we're trying really hard. I'm like, well, try harder. Like, this is not the, this isn't the right way to do it. You know, and it was clear because no one read it. Right. No one subscribed to it. And part of what you're, the secondary argument there was, Wired has like 900 boxes to check off. It's got to like have its UK and US advertisers and it's got to right. like fulfill this obligation. Whereas you can micro publish your own magazine that is much simpler than this and right. is therefore better. Right. So this was, this was the whole subcompact publishing. Subcompact. What did I, did I call it? Micro. Yes. So subcompact. Subcompact, which was a reference to like these weird Japanese cars, these subcompact yes. cars that Japan was putting out. That were basically like motorcycle engines inside of like copied Mini Cooper yeah. chassis that were shrunk down. But they were they worked really well and they got like, I don't know, 60 miles to the gallon or something. I mean, it was just re they were ridiculous machines. Yeah. And there was, again, you know, and this is in 2012 or so, a confluence of things that were coming together that allowed someone to do this, to publish a zine. And to have the infrastructure to get payments in place because mm -hmm. it was Apple's newsstand had come out. And it was like, this is basically a precursor to what we're seeing now with uh, Patreon. And so I remember maybe like a year or two ago, you know, when the, the magazine, Marco Armand's, the magazine was kind of the example I was pointing at. Yeah. Like, here's a thing, single person's doing it. It's profitable. You know, they're kind of, it's kind of supporting an interesting vein of writing that otherwise wouldn't get published like we could be doing a lot of these and then the magazine folded and everyone was like hey you were wrong about <laughs> subcap i'm like come on i mean it was like it wasn't about the specifics of newsstand it was about saying there are pieces of infrastructure in place for distribution and payments and production 
that are going to allow a lot more independent publishing. And I think with Patreon, we've really seen that. And actually, the thing I missed was I didn't think about it in terms of video. Mm. And I think that what we've really seen in the last five years is that video publishing has been completely revolutionized in a way that I think we expected text to be. But video was done. Well, video went from absolute zero, absolute total zero. If you wanted to make a little video and make any money off that, impossible. Good luck. To In the last three years, how many YouTube millionaires are there now? Right. People making videos in their, in their bedroom in a way that would have been absolutely unthinkable. You have channels like, you know, Primitive Technology, which is this weird channel of this dude in the forest in just a pair of shorts making mud huts. He has an audience. He has like six million subscribers. <laughs> He's never said a word. I love that. I love that. Like that's to me, that is the zine of YouTube. You couldn't have made that quote unquote like video zine 20 years ago in the way that he's doing it. Whereas like a lot of the, the, the writing that we're doing independently on blogs or whatever, you could have kind of hobbled together a zine at Kinko's or whatever, right? 20 years ago, you could have made an artifact out of that. So I think that's been really surprising that there is this way to do sustainable, interesting video in a way that sustainable, interesting text hasn't found, uh, you know, that same vein of sustainability. But you are yourself still in, in the text world. Like that is primarily what you do with your life is write. Right. And writers come on the show or I talk to them all the time and they say like, you know, I came up in this blah, blah, blah magazine way. I didn't used to have to think about this stuff, but now I'm wondering, you know, should I have my own website? Should I put my stuff on medium? Like, no. who do you think I should publish my stuff? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So at the tail end of this journey, like where are you personally as a writer and like, what are you working on and why? Well, the reason, um, why I'm still writing in part, it's just because I feel like that's, for me, it's important to do that. Yeah. Uh, I've looked at all the stuff I've worked on and the thing that, the thing that has, if you want to make it really, uh, like evidence-based, it's like the things that I've worked on that have had the most interesting returns, right? So like talk like a finance engineer or something like the greatest long-term dividend payouts have been from writing. Like the most interesting people in my life I've connected through because of writing. The most interesting adventures I've gone on have been because of writing more than the apps that I've built or more than the websites I put together, which is weird in hindsight, looking back on it. I wouldn't have expected that. But, uh, you know, I think it, it just speaks to the fact that, you know, a, a condensed, well-formed, piece of text has a tremendous amount of power still today, you know, and that, um, you know, all, all writing for me is about conversation starting, you know, it's like, how do we engage? How do I help people step up to a higher level for us to have a conversation together about something that's exciting to me in the moment, you know, and of the last couple of years, a lot of my writing has shifted into focusing on attention and like, how do we, how do we engage with technology today when technology is so antagonistic towards our, towards us, and how do we do it in this climate that feels like so antagonistic to being a human? How do we get better at finding peace in here in order to have these other high-level conversations that feel like are important to being humans and to, and to pushing things forward and going to interesting places? Having this last decade that you've had, most people would locate themselves in New York or San Francisco probably uh, to follow your interest path. What has it meant to you to be in Japan? Well, I mean, I, I, I did go to San Francisco. 
you know, for three years, 20, yeah. 2010 to 2013, right in the middle of it, in the heart of it. And I was, you know, New York has always been a place I do quarterly trips to. So none of these places have felt distant. Yeah. But being in Japan, it does a couple things for me. One, it fulfills my faith in humanity. Like I pay taxes in Japan and I see those taxes manifest in really nice roads. I'm like, when I ride my bike in Japan, I'm like, yeah, this is my tax money. Or like there's a gym, there's a public gym in every neighborhood and I go and I use it and it costs me a buck, you know, and I'm there with a bunch of like old people who are also working out and I'm like, awesome. Like, this is great. The trains run on time. Like, you know, people care about their jobs. There's a tremendous pride in everything and, and, and in craft, you know, and, and in Japan being a craftsperson is not a cop out. You know, I feel like in Brooklyn, like if, if you say, hey, I make pickles, people are like, come on, dude, like, when are you going to grow up? Or like, you you know, Portland is often described as the city where adults go to to never become adults, you know, and I think that's a lot of that is speaking to the culture of America where we don't view craftspeople as real participants in a way that Japan does. And part of that is having this formalized way of, be, of entering craft. So it's like you go and you do your five years of apprenticeship and then you do a few years of kind of like helping out the master. And then maybe if you're lucky, like year eight or nine or 10, you're willing to take, you break off and do your own thing. And so uh, I think having that touchstone of Japan, having a base there and being able to go, know I can go back there whenever I need to and remember those ideals of living uh, for me is, is allowed me to operate in the way I've operated in a way that I'm really grateful for. Thank you very much, Craig Mott. Great. Thank you for listening. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our sponsor, MailChimp. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Angela Velez. Uh, thanks to Craig Mott for coming in. Uh, the podcast of his that we were talking about is called On Margins. You can find out more about it at craigmod.com slash onmargins. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.